0: Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more HemiSync podcasts, such as Episode 8 with Dean Raven, podcasts that aren't necessarily associated with any particular HemiSync product, but simply feature fascinating guests and subjects associated with the frontiers of consciousness research and understanding, please consider joining our exclusive Patreon page and get some great discounts on HemiSync products in the bargain. Thanks for watching. Hey, thanks for joining us for the HemiSing podcast. I'm joined today by Bernardo Castrop. He's the author of six books having to do with consciousness. Bernardo is a proponent of idealism, which posits that consciousness is fundamental to all reality. His ideas are gaining traction in the mainstream, having recently been published in Scientific American. So please welcome Bernardo Castrop. Bernardo, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, personally, with you. great. Um, personally, I think your writings on the subject of consciousness are among the best out there right now. And um, I kn- and I know that you write mostly for an educated audience, even for an academic audience, but can you just kind of start off by telling us a bit about your concept of what you call monistic idealism and how it differentiates from kind of the current prevailing worldview that dominates uh, scientific thought, which is uh, physical materialism.
1: Yeah. Well, monistic idealism, uh, at at least uh, in formulations similar to the one uh, I put forward, is a skeptical worldview, a skeptical ontology in the sense that it sticks to what we know. Uh, There is only one ontological class, one kind of existent that we have direct access to, that we can refer to directly, and that is experience. With the qualities of experience the redness of the color red the sweetness of strawberries uh, uh, the bitterness of disappointment uh, how it feels to have a bellyache Th- these are qualities of experience and to a monistic of idealism to, to a monistic idealist the entire universe is made of experience experience is all there is there is no Abstract material world outside of experience and which somehow modulates experience creates and modulates experience Uh, The challenge for the monistic idealism of course is to make sense of certain undeniable observations like uh, uh, there is a tight correlation between uh, uh, Brain function and experience if all there is is experience. How do you explain that correlation or clearly? We all seem to share the same world I'm not a solipsist I believe you are conscious and Mm. I believe my my girlfriend is conscious the ant is conscious even the bacteria in my aquarium Mm. are conscious Um, and we all seem to inhabit the same universe if this universe is purely mental uh, or kind of a dream how come we are all sharing the same dream and uh, or things like uh, well if everything is mental if everything is in mind why can't I just change the laws of nature merely by wishing them to be different? Clearly we can't. So these are the challenges for the idealist to make sense of these observations without having to postulate uh, matter fundamentally outside and independent of consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. And I guess in contrast, a, a physicalist would maintain that um, you know, consciousness is um, a... Uh, uh, what's the word? Um, consciousness derives from physical matter, and when you stack up the atoms, the molecules that make our cells, tissues, and you know, th- this is an additive process that happens. Um, and at some point, I guess you achieve consciousness.
1: Yes, that's that's the physicalist postulate. So if we compare the two, uh, the idealist would say that there is only mind, and matter is a particular modality of experience mm-hmm. associated to uh, associated with associated with perception. Certain things you see, you touch, you smell; uh, those experiences is what are, are what we call matter. To a physicalist, matter is all there is. Mm-hmm. Mind or experience is uh, an epiphenomenon or, or, or a product of certain specific arrangements of matter, certain configurations of matter that somehow, in a way that nobody has a clue, uh, generates the qualities of experience. And mm-hmm. it is it is this transition from matter to mind. That is so problematic in physicalism.
0: Mm-hmm. And so one of your books is entitled Why Materialism is Baloney. And you can check them all out on Amazon, right? That's the place to go for Bernardo's books. Very good. So there. And I definitely want to give you a chance to pimp your books, um, which are excellent, by the way. Um, and so, why materialism is baloney? What are some of the absurdities that derive from um, taking the materialist position?
1: Well, the, the first one. Is, is well known as, uh, as the hard problem of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea that uh, if materialism is correct, then all there is really out there uh, is matter. And matter is characterized by abstract relational properties like mass, spin, charge, momentum, the geometrical relationships between particles. Uh, how do you derive the qualities of experience what it feels like to have a bellyache, what it feels like to eat a strawberry, what it feels like to fall in love, how you derive these qualities from the abstract quantities that characterize matter. Uh, spin up or spin down? How much mass? Mm-hmm. Charge positive or charge negative? How do you, do, how do you bridge this gap? Um, I'll, I'll, uh, m- many philosophers claim that this gap is fundamentally impossible to bridge. It's not only that we haven't bridged it yet, It's that we will never be able to bridge because there is just a a, a gaping abyss between the world of abstract abstract quantities and the world of of concrete qualities. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is nothing about charge, mass, momentum, spin, in terms of which one could deduce uh, what it is like to see red, what it is like to fall in love, and so Mm -hmm. on. This bridge is arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And that's a sign, okay, that we've done something wrong. Uh, The moment we pose this problem to ourselves, this problem is so incoherent, it's so impossible, that we've done something wrong before. And I think what we've done wrong is to abstract that there is a material world fundamentally outside and independent of mind, and then trying to recover mind from that abstraction. The absurdity of that is that basically, matter is an abstraction of mind. So one is trying to explain mind In terms of an abstraction of mind, there is a fundamental paradox uh, in this. Uh, It's like we are chasing our own tails at light speed. (laughs) We'll Mm -hmm. never be able to solve that. That's one absurdity, a well-known one. There are many others. Like uh, I'll give just one more example to keep it brief. If if, uh, materialism is correct, then the qualities of experience, which is all we know, uh, uh, are generated by your brain inside your skull. The world out there has no qualities, mm-hmm. it has no colors, it has no melody, it has no flavor, it has nothing. It's just it, the only way to to visualize it is to think of it as mathematical equations, uh, completely abstract quantities. Right. Um, so your entire life as you know it, uh, uh, this screen in front of you as you see it, the, the, the things you touch, even the stars in the sky... They only exist, insofar as you experience them, they only exist inside your head. So Mm -hmm. your real skull is beyond the stars in the night sky. Because the stars in the night sky, as you see them, supposedly according to materialism, Uh, are being created inside your skull, by your brain. Your real skull is beyond uh, the sky. Right. Uh, And that's absurd. It's basically saying that your entire life plays out inside your head. Yeah. As opposed to your head being in the world, it says that the world you experience is inside your head. Uh, It's a complete inversion.
0: Which is, I guess, another way of saying that the outside world is an illusion, which I guess has a certain Eastern mystical quality to it. But it sort of begs the question of, well, if it's an illusion, who is having the illusion, right? Uh,
1: I don't think the world outside ourselves as individuals is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, in so, because we experience it, and insofar as we experience it, it exists as such. Right, but that's, the phys-
0: I, that's sort of the physicalist argument, right? No, no, well, no. Well, that no. It's, uh, it, it, it's an abstract, it becomes an abstraction. Everything is a set of mathematical probabilities, which is an abstraction.
1: Correct, correct. So so let me be clear. Mm -hmm. I don't deny an external world in the sense of a world outside our personal individual mentation, our personal individual minds. There is a world outside our personal individual minds, Mm -hmm. but this world is not outside mind. Mm-hmm. It is not made of a different thing than mentation. It's not my mentation right. alone. There is mentation out there, outside me. There right. are thoughts out there, outside me. I think the world outside is underlined by, by, by thoughts. Mm-hmm. But those are not my personal thoughts. Those right. are the thoughts of mind at large, the thoughts of nature at large, right. which we register, we perceive as the contents of perception. Right. Uh, what we experience on the screen of perception is the extrinsic appearance of the thoughts that underlie nature at large. So I don't deny an external world. I deny a world outside mentation itself. Mm-hmm. It is outside my mentation. It's just not other than mentation. The physicalist also grants that there is a world outside our personal mentation. But the physicalist goes further and says, this world outside my personal mentation is not mental. It's pure abstraction, Mm -hmm. it's just quantities unfolding according to certain patterns and regularities that they can model according to mathematical equations, but it has no qualities. The qualities are all all created by my brain inside my head. That's the difference.
0: And so if you took that, if you took the physicalist argument to its uh, logical extreme and you get down to kind of very small quantities and you get into the quantum theories. One of the theories that's evolved and has gained traction recently is the many-worlds hypothesis, right? Which, um, to me, seems absurd on its face, because you quickly... um, So it's, it's very inflationary, right? Which means you very quickly develop an infinite number of universes to explain all these phenomena that we experience, which can much more elegantly be explained simply by... Um, your theory, which is that everything sits within consciousness. Can you just talk a a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so according to quantum theory, um, the world is not deterministic Uh, at the quantum level. uh, There are probabilities associated with quantum events. And and these probabilities only become resolved once we as observers interact uh, with the world. Now, there's a lot of polemic polemic about uh, what constitutes an observer could a measurement apparatus be an observer Uh, it's an open discussion but ultimately we only know if a measurement apparatus made a measurement, made an observation when we look at the dial of the measurement apparatus Mm -hmm. with our own consciousness, so we only get to know what happened once our consciousness is involved Um, so uh, Ultimately, then, we can say, according to quantum physics, as far as we can know, the world only translates from a set of overlapping probabilities into a definite reality that we experience the moment we come and look at it. Now, there are many ways to interpret that. Uh, The many worlds interpretation says that uh, all the possibilities within that envelope of possibilities, all those possibilities actually play out. Just in parallel universes mm-hmm. and at every moment where a choice can be made, both choices are actually made, and the universe branches out uh, into different branches of multiplying choices mm-hmm. uh, as you said, it is extraordinarily inflationary. Uh, I challenge anybody to find a more inflationary inflationary explanation for reality right. because it basically says that everything that can possibly happen does happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the proponents would argue that it's not inflationary in the sense that it's the thing that derives most naturally from the mathematical equations. I dispute that. I don't think it's derived naturally at all from the mathematical equations. Only if you consider natural uh, uh, what is lazy. Mm. <laughs> it is the laziest uh, interpretation because you uh, say if the equations allow for this, then this happens. Mm-hmm. And that's other thing too, so long as it's allowed by the equations. Right. I think what's actually happen, happening is that the world out there in the sense of the world outside my personal meditation uh, is constituted of thoughts i'm using the word thought to to refer to any mental category that is not perception Mm -hmm. so that would include thoughts imagination emotions and so on so the world out there is constituted of overlapping thoughts Mm
0: -hmm.
1: thoughts can overlap Mm -hmm. even be contradictory i mean if i'm weighing on uh, uh, about whether I should accept a job offer, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: until I make the decision, I'm living with both possibilities in my mind. The possibility of accepting the job offer and the possibility of not accepting the job offer. And in my mind, both possibilities play out at the same time. I'm imagining both possibilities. So I think the world out there is constituted of thoughts in this kind of overlap, and that's Mm -hmm. what we call quantum superposition. Uh, And this superposition once we, uh, our personal dissociated minds, interact with this superposition, they interfere with one another, and what happens is that we then register a definite world. Mm-hmm. Of all the possibilities, this interfer- interference pattern of my interaction with the world uh, will reinforce only one and de emphasize all the others, so I experience only one. Right. And that is then my personal physical world. Right. When you interact with the world, you experience your personal physical world, which is dependent on how you interact with it, how you observe it. And our physical worlds are consistent with one another. They are different, but they are consistent with one another because we are both interacting with the same mind at large out mm-hmm. there. And that's how the consistency comes. But you are in your own physical world and I am in my own.
0: Right. So um, I guess if I could summarize, and you can tell me if I'm uh, messing this up, but um, so you give the term to um, kind of the larger consciousness system or being or presence, whatever you want to call it, you sort of refer to it as mind at large. We are each dissociated instances of that mind at large. And that degree of dissociation might vary by person, but we're all so, you know, we've we've also become separated from that mind at large. Um, and so we each have our own individual consciousness. When those fields overlap, like you and I would both agree that we're having this conversation right now, that is sort of um, what gives rise to the events in the world that we can mostly all agree are, are happening. Correct. Um, and so this seems like a much more um, elegant way to explain phenomena. You like to make the point that one of the ways that we can determine the strength of a scientific hypothesis is through parsimony. And so when you compare this to, say, the many-worlds theory, um, it seems quite a bit more parsimonious.
1: Uh, Not only uh, for the reason that we just discussed, that the many-worlds interpretation would require uh, a a mind-boggling number of universes, strictly it's not infinite but it's so large as to defy any possibility of imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because uh, the many worlds interpretation under a materialist paradigm would leave consciousness itself unexplained because mm-hmm. of the uh, of the um, hard problem of consciousness. Yes. You see, a- a- every theory of nature has to have what we call an ontological primitive. You cannot keep on explaining one thing in terms of another forever. Mm-hmm. At some point, you, you hit rock bottom, you say, okay, at this level, nature simply is. It's simply what there is. Mm-hmm. And that's legitimate, so long as you can explain everything else in terms of that thing that is, that yeah. ontological primitive. Uh, materialism uh, uh, regardless of the interpretation of quantum physics that you choose if you are a materialist because you see interpretation of quantum physics is on the edge of science and philosophy but materialism mm-hmm. is squarely a metaphysics it's pure philosophy, it's not science uh, and so idealism as well uh, if you're a materialist regardless of the interpretation of quantum physics you choose you will be postulating some physical ontological primitive like uh, the menu of fundamental subatomic particles of the, of, of, of the um, standard model, or mm-hmm. the brains of M-theory, or the superstrings of string theory, or the quantum field of quantum field theory. It, there is a variety of options, but you always have a physical ontological primitive, and then you fail to derive mind itself, consciousness, the qualities of experience, from that ontological primitive. Mm-hmm. Idealism would say, well, consciousness itself is the ontological primitive, therefore, I don't have to explain it, it's yeah. simply what there is. Yeah. What I do have to do now is explain all the patterns and regularities of experience, including the fact that you seem to have a separate consciousness than mine. I have to explain all that in terms of this one universal consciousness. That's the challenge for the, for the idealist. hmm If the idealist solves this, then the idealist certainly has a more parsimonious and explanatorily powerful uh, mm -hmm. uh,
0: uh, worldview. And so where do you think we are with this in terms of um, these ideas getting uh, traction kind of in the zeitgeist and within the scientific community? I think it's beginning
1: to... I mean, materialism has been entrenched for arguably more, but I would say close to 200 years,
0: mm-hmm.
1: arguably more, but at least since the beginning of the 19th century. Um, uh, you could argue that you it know, started back at Descartes, the card, you yeah. could argue that started even earlier than that. Um, it certainly has become very, very entrenched in the 20th century. Um, and I think now it's, it's beginning to change. I mean... Uh, I, I've published a paper and mm-hmm. a very extensive paper on idealism mm-hmm. in the Journal of Consciousness Studies, perhaps the premier venue uh, in this field, mm-hmm. um, going 2,000 words uh, above uh, the word limit they accepted. <laughs> so I'm regularly published on Scientific American, which until not so long ago had, be, had been considered a sort of you know HQ of the materialist paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, And they've published, they continue to publish my stuff several Mm -hmm. times a year. There is a new one coming out. Um, So I think it's beginning to change. Uh, What is key, I think, is that uh, the non-materialists, the idealists, the panpsychists, with whom I don't agree, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, they have to, if we are to have a chance to, to change the cultural mindset, we have to play by the existing rules. Mm-hmm. You cannot change a paradigm and change the rule book at the same time. It's too much to change. Yeah. You have to play by the existing rules. And that means you have to play by the existing rules of evidence. You have to play by, by the existing rules of, of reasoning. Yeah. Uh, you have to reason logically. You yeah. have to be grounded in evidence. Uh, um, you have to you have to write according to the accepted language. Use the accepted jargon uh, and that's where a lot of the folks who are idealists, even without knowing, like the non-dualists, the, you know, the spirituality people, uh, that's where they, they, they don't stand a chance um, because they don't follow the, 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 rule, the established rules of reasoning, the mm-hmm. established rules of evidence, the, the language, the jargon, the way of thinking, the way yeah. of presenting, the way of articulating. They don't even follow the same value system. Yeah, uh, Science is largely based on a value system. Like, right. uh, parsimony is better than inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are values in science. Um, you have to play by those values, too, which I think are correct, uh, by yeah. the way. Um, and I think only recently people started playing the game according to the existing rules to promote a different worldview that, yep. uh, that defies materialism. And And I think it's going well.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of what's so interesting to me about your approach, is you're trying to change the um, prevailing mindset through scientific channels, through peer-reviewed journals. Um, and I guess I'm struck by how some of your critics, they seem to um, level ad hominem attacks at you and dismiss your theories out of hand, um, often, it seems, without actually reading the paper. Um, how do you (laughs) how do you deal with that
1: Uh, well this is normal in the sense that it's not nice it's not good it's not justifiable but it's normal in the sense that it happens a lot and it doesn't happen only to me so i'm not the poor guy who is being you know singled out for for unfair treatment Mm -hmm. This, this happens all the time Maybe the non-materialist guys or the non-physicalists, that would be the correct term, mainstream physicalism, but never mind, we continue to use materialism. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they get more than their fair share of this kind of uh, ad hominem attacks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I got one recently you probably saw online, um, a famous professor of philosophy, uh, Massimo Piglucci. Yeah. Uh, he he out of his own initiative i didn't i didn't even know him i had heard the name but i didn't know 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 who he was he i learned later that he was famous as a a militant skeptic and Mm -hmm. militant uh, materialist he came after me and my i reacted and we had some interactions via our own blogs and via twitter and once you I pressed the issue. It became abundantly clear that uh, he had not read the paper that he said should not have passed peer review. (laughs) He didn't read it. Um, That's who
0: I was referring to. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, but you know, it, he looked like a fool, not me, so it's okay, I'm I'm okay that people keep doing that. Right.
0: Yeah, no, I I just pointed out because, you know, you you emphasize the need to kind of play by the rules and go through the existing channels, but a lot of the folks that kind of represent uh, the established orthodoxy don't always play by the rules. Um, Anyway, Um, so you you touched upon uh, panpsychism, and just to kind of make this clear, your theory is different than panpsychism, which postulates basically that consciousness is in everything um you're saying consciousness sits in that or that that everything sits within consciousness um anything else That's you want correct. to say on that before we kind of yeah just,
1: just well to, to to be fair to some of my philosophy colleagues uh, yeah. there are definitions of the term panpsychism that are so broad mm-hmm. as to encompass idealism encompass what i'm doing too mm-hmm. uh, I, I acknowledge that these definitions exist i don't think they are helpful because when a definition is so broad, the term becomes useless because it encompasses so, so much stuff that is different that it becomes uh, an unhelpful term. Mm-hmm. The more usual definition of panpsychism is that uh, matter inherently has consciousness. All matter, not only a, a biological brain, uh, uh, but a table, mm-hmm. a rock, an electron, a subatomic particle, an atom. Uh, It all has consciousness. In other words, there is something it is like to be an electron. There is something it is like to be my computer. And there is something it is like to be me. Mm -hmm. Uh, We say that uh, all arrangements of matter are conscious, or at least many arrangements of matter. Uh, uh, Some panpsychists would say, The atoms of my table are conscious in and Mm -hmm. of themselves, or the subatomic particles that compose my table are conscious, but the table itself is not conscious as a table. Mm -hmm. It's only an aggregate of conscious atoms or or conscious subatomic particles. So there's all kinds of variations there, but the essence of panpsychism is that matter is conscious.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I disagree with that because that sort of attributes consciousness as a property within the existing framework of physical matter. Uh, So it sort of acknowledges that there is more to matter than consciousness itself, in a sense. That consciousness is an intrinsic aspect of matter, fundamental, all right, intrinsic, all right, but an aspect of matter nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And in my view, that is not the case. I think matter... is in consciousness in the sense that what we call matter is a modality of experience in consciousness associated to, uh, with perception. Uh, I don't think matter is conscious, I think matter is in consciousness. Um, when we ask, if, say, I have a mobile phone, when we ask, is this mobile phone conscious, we mean more than just to say that consciousness underlies the matter of my mobile phone. What mm-hmm. we mean is, Does this mobile phone have a conscious inner life of its own, as Mm -hmm. a mobile phone, a private inner life of its own, in the sense that I have a private inner life of my own? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think this mobile phone has a private inner life of its own, Mm -hmm. in the sense that I don't think that this mobile phone is the image of a dissociated alter of universal consciousness, the way I am. I think biology, life, Is the image of dissociated altars Mm -hmm. of uh, universal consciousness. Living things are the image of dissociated altars. Mm -hmm. Therefore, living things have a private inner life of their own. But the inanimate universe out there, uh, parts of it, like this phone or my table or my home thermostat, I don't think they have conscious inner lives of their own in the same way that a single neuron in my brain doesn't seem to have a conscious inner life of its own. Mm. There is something it is like to be me, in other words, there is something it is like to be my nervous system as a whole. But I don't think there is something it is like to be a single neuron in my head in and of itself. At least I don't experience that. I only experience an integrated inner life that they associated with my entire nervous system, not individual neurons. In that exact same way, I don't think there is something it is like to be the moon or my mobile phone. But I do think there is something it is like to be the entire inanimate universe as a whole. And that is the inner life of mind at large. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I do think consciousness underlies this foam in the same way that consciousness underlies a single neuron in my head. But I don't think there is something it is like to be this foam in and of itself, in the same way that, uh, that I don't think there is something it is like to be a single neuron in and of itself. The entire inanimate universe as a whole is conscious, not parts of it, not subsets yeah. of it, like rocks and moons. That's so,
0: you like to describe things that have an interior life as alters, right, as dissociated examples of mind at large. Things like the phone, the table, you describe those as excitations of consciousness, correct? Correct. And can you talk a bit about that? What, what does it mean to be an excitation of consciousness?
1: An excitation of consciousness is what we call an experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we say that uh, all of existence uh, is in consciousness, uh, then we have to, the next step in this line of reasoning, well, existence is dynamic, it happens, it unfolds. Uh, So what is that? Well, if it is all in consciousness, it can only be an excitation of consciousness. And if we need to visualize that, I think It's very difficult to visualize the subject right we tend Mm -hmm. to visualize objects and what I'm saying is that the whole of existence is actually uh, the inner life even the dissociated inner life of one subject that Mm -hmm. there are no objects as such only excitations of this one subject
0: which is mind-at-large which is
1: which is universal consciousness I would reserve the term mind of large mind at large to whatever is not dissociated okay but but it's a technical detail Uh uh-huh but the best way to visualize it in terms of objects, I think, is to visualize universal consciousness as empty space. If you need to visualize it as an object, visualize it as empty space. And an existence is the excitation of empty space, uh, which are experiences. The excitations of empty space are the things we experience, we and maybe mind at large itself. Uh, so that's the way I would it forward. And mm-hmm. um, to, to go even further in this sort of inaccurate uh, visualization, which works as a metaphor, you could even visualize empty space as a kind of vibrating membrane mm-hmm. and uh, an existence, or the experiences that we associate with matter, with uh, the unfolding of the universe, as frequencies or patterns of vibration of mm-hmm. this membrane. Uh, and if you visualize it that way, you can even port the entire mathematical apparatus of superstring theory or M theory or quantum field theory to idealism. If you imagine that what is being excited, the quantum field that gets excited, or the brains that vibrate, or the superstrings that vibrate, uh, if they are consciousness itself, uh, then the whole thing comes together.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so maybe just to kind of. Um... Follow up or clarify um, one point that maybe I I missed. So um, in your writings, I guess I had concluded that um, you refer to mind at large or mind at large as unitary, undivided consciousness, um, which you borrow from Aldous Huxley, Doors of Perception, right? Um, and an Eastern. Uh, philosophical mindset might refer to it as infinite consciousness, cosmic consciousness, Brahman. It, are those actually um, roughly equivalent, or is there a distinction that I that uh, maybe I missed between mind at large and those concepts?
1: Well, you, you, if you, it depends on the how you use the terms in a technical paper but that's sort of hair splitting i think Uh uh, roughly they are equivalent yeah i i I don't mind different names i think all names are equally inappropriate
0: (laughs) okay gotcha um and so one thing that i that i that i wanted to touch on a little bit is um so you know these are basically so experiences of cosmic consciousness or a unitary consciousness i mean a unitary consciousness an experience of that would kind of be inherently non-dual correct Um, And so it's kind of a mystical experience. Um, And so your books are academic, they're not how-to books. But I'm curious, um, you know, why that is, and what your own experience has been with any type of non-dual experience, how they came about, um, and if you'd be interested in in talking about that.
1: Sure. Um, I'm willing to talk about anything. Uh-huh. Um, so you're you're coming to back to, to my own personal experiences, right? Because when we yeah, write,
0: uh, it could be your own personal experience, or you know, just your own kind of um, thinking around how people that are you know hearing this conversation might actually you know go about having a non-dual experience.
1: Yeah, I. I'm, that 's really not what i 'm
0: it 's not your thing what I'm I know that in any yeah, way yeah.
1: I'm, I'm not a spiritual, spiritual teacher right, you, in, yeah. in, in any sense of the word the word there are people out there who are a lot better
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, they are, can be true spiritual teachers i don 't have a spiritual teacher and i'm not a spiritual teacher mm-hmm. i'll tell you what i 'm trying to do i yep. 'm um, talking concepts, mm-hmm. theories um, perspectives, conceptual stuff, is conceptual stuff uh, trans- transforming, does mm-hmm. it really change your life, does it really make you feel different or experience the world differently? Mm-hmm. Hardly, maybe a little bit, but they are not transformational yeah. uh, in that sense. Uh, a non-duo experience is transformation mm-hmm. and, it, uh, and it does not require concepts. Mm-hmm. You do not need to explain it to yourself or to somebody else. What is it that you experienced? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's I mean, it's, it's uh, totally unnecessary. The experience is its own proof. Yep. It, it's so charged with a feeling of truth yeah. that you do not need to explain it to yourself in order to be, to be convinced that, it, that, that you experienced something real, more mm-hmm. real than this. Yep. Than this right now, this everyday uh, life we have. Uh, so why do I do this? i do this for the following reason we live in a society where people need to give themselves intellectual permission to embrace a different perspective mm-hmm. even if they have a non dual experience that is self-evidently true and they know it is true after 48 hours they are already asking themselves maybe i just you know hallucinated something it's yeah. unreliable stuff because they start to come back to To this conceptual world we live in, we we have hardly any contact with reality. Mm. We live in a conceptual mesh, a conceptual network in our edge that we project up there. We hardly see the world for what it is. We see the concepts we project on it, the explanations we project on it. Um, So we we, we drift back to that. It's it's like a, a black hole. It has... Uh, uh, irresistible gravitational pull so you may have a mind-boggling undue experience I tell you, within a month if you're very lucky and you really had the strongest experience there is you are back to questioning whether it was really valid and becoming skeptical about it back to the story we tell ourselves but if we have a conceptual cultural narrative uh, that you can absorb that you believe in that you can be skeptical about check and say "Wow, well, this actually does make sense and that's a handy explanation that also makes sense of that extraordinary experience i had mm-hmm. then you give intellectual permission to stay there yeah. to stay with that new perspective and then your life changes so what i'm trying to do is to construct an alternative cultural narrative right. that is also logical parsimonious and empirically grounded that right. is as, at least as good as anything else and hopefully much better than everything else out there. Right. And then people can give themselves intellectual permission to hold on to an experience they have already had mm. or intellectual permission to even have the experience in the first place. Yeah. Because that has been my personal history, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. I was playing with these concepts before I had an unequivocal uh, non-dual experience myself. So it feels to me like I have had to Give myself that intellectual permission first before I opened up uh, to an experience. I, I'm a very hard-headed <laughs> guy, you know. This uh, this is tough stuff. It doesn't.
0: You're cerebral. Doesn't,
1: yeah, I'm very cerebral. Yeah. very. I I live in a cage uh, constructed out of my own thoughts, mm-hmm. conceptualizations. So uh, I, I needed this, and I think many people do need it as well.
0: Yeah. So let me see if I'm getting this right. So. This idea of idealism, this idea that consciousness is fundamental, is so important to you, and clearly it is, um, because the notion of physicalism, of materialism, undergirds not only scientific thought, our view of reality, but that view of reality also informs our culture and the way we live, which is itself predominantly materialistic. When you examine our lives, um, one of the reasons why they seem so deficient, so narrow, so unsatisfying, is because we live to acquire more shit. (laughs) Um, And by changing that underlying worldview um, to this notion that consciousness is actually what's fundamental, not matter, that can in turn change the cultural view. And how we live our lives.
1: Correct. Uh, let me just be clear. I i am a proponent of idealism mm-hmm. because I think it is true. Yep. Not because I think it will make our lives better. No,
0: I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't okay. mean to uh, uh, that, No,
1: but. no, I, I, I know you didn't mean that. I'm, I'm just making this point yes. f- for the audience. Right. Uh, um, so uh, I think idealism is true in the sense, well, do we have direct access to truth, Hardly. I think idealism is the closest to truth we can get Mm -hmm. on the basis of how the human brain works, how our Mm -hmm. logic operates, uh, our values, our parsimony, the way we reason, and the evidence on the table. Mm -hmm. It's the closest we can get to truth. And that alone is reason to promote it. Because Mm -hmm. why are we going to live in untruth? Even if idealism would basically lead to uh, a, a Terrible way of life, a a, a sordid value system, even then, I would still go for it if I thought it were true. Right. Now, in addition to it being true, I think it would also correct a lot of the craziness and stupidity that uh, governs uh, uh, human life uh, in in the 21st century. Yeah. Uh, I I think a lot of our pain, uh, a lot of the destruction we inflict uh, on the world and on each other uh, uh, arises from this, uh, how we use the word, stupid worldview of materialism. It is illogical, it flies in the face of evidence, it is self-contradictory. It's a very, very poor uh, narrative for making sense of the world, which also happens to lead to a very distorted and destructive value system. Um, yeah. So I think there is a, it's a double whammy. There, there are two irresistible reasons to, to correct this.
0: Right. So really, it's the love of the truth that sits above everything else. This idea that consciousness is fundamental is what is true, and that is what needs to be um, advanced. But there yeah. are all these implications that flow from that being true, and the culture and the way we live is really just one of them. Um, but there are, there, are, there are also others. And one of the things that you'd like to point out is um, the implications for integrative mind body medicine. Um, like, what do you think? Can you just expand on that a little bit? I think that's yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it needs a little background. Yeah. So, my view is that a uh, biological body. Mm-hmm. Is the extrinsic appearance of a dissociated altar of universal consciousness. In other words, it's what an altar looks like from a second-person perspective, from yeah. the perspective of another altar.
0: Right. Uh,
1: you are an altar. I am an altar. When my altar looks at your altar, what I see is your physical body. It's the image of that dissociated process in, in universal consciousness. Right. In the same way, that a person suffering from multiple personality disorder, if you put that person in a brain scan. Uh, the images you see uh, from from this person's brain, uh, 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 as a study showed in 2014, those images, you can use those images to discern dissociative processes in the mind of that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the universe is, uh, I use this in between quotes, a kind of nervous system. Yeah. We are in it, so we don't need a brain scan to see these dissociative processes. We are already inside it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we just need to look around, and, 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 and what we see is living organism the, the organisms. Mm-hmm. So a body then is the extrinsic appearance of dissociated mental processes and not only the brain the entire body. Now you may say well uh, uh, I can access my own thoughts but I cannot access any mental activity that corresponds to my left big toe. It just seems to exist it's out there. Well then, then there's a question of you know Consciousness and meta-consciousness. If there is a technical distinction, you can have experiences that you do not do not know that you have. You have the experiences, you experience them, but you don't know that you are experiencing them. For instance, mm-hmm. um, until I say this, you do, you are not aware that you are having the experience of breathing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the moment I point to your breathing, the air flowing in and out of your nostrils, the inflation of your lungs, the movement of your diaphragm, now you become metaconscious of your breathing. Not only you're having the experience of breathing, now you know that you are having the experience of breathing. And 30 seconds ago, you were still having that experience, but you didn't know that you were having it. So we can only introspect into a subset of the experiences that correspond to our body. That's why we cannot access the inner life of the big toe, (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, But I think the entire body corresponds to experience, not only the brain, the liver, the kidneys, the lungs, the muscles, the skin, everything that is alive in the body corresponds. It's the extrinsic appearance of experience. Mm -hmm. And that opens a whole new door for integrative uh, uh, medicine. If we treat the body as a mechanism, then doctors are mechanics. And all they have uh, uh, as tools are the tools of mechanics, in other words, drugs and surgery, physical interventions with the body. Mm -hmm. But if we acknowledge that the entire body, every organ, corresponds to uh, inner life, to inner experiences, even though we cannot access them through introspection, uh, depth psychology would call these experiences the unconscious. I think it's a misnomer. I don't mm-hmm. think it's unconscious at all. It's just beyond the, the, the range of introspection, but right. it's still a conscious experience.
0: You refer that or you refer to that as obfuscated consciousness, right?
1: Obfuscated consciousness, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if the entire body corresponds to it, then you can influence any disease, any illness through the mental channel. Not mm-hmm. only through the physical channel of drugs and, 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 uh, and surgery, uh, both are mental under my view, but one is associated with perception and the other is associated with introspection, meditation, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, that channel opens, becomes validated, becomes legitimized, so to say, uh, by idealism and many other avenues of treatment, even placebo, mm-hmm. uh, even benign forms of misdirection mm-hmm. uh, could be validated because basically you're using the channel of introspection the channel of beliefs thoughts inner emotions uh, to correct an illness to, to mm-hmm. correct disease uh, you don't see anymore the body as a machine that you occupy from the distance of your head uh, um, but as an integral part of your conscious inner life that can be affected uh, uh, through uh, psychological channels mm-hmm. um, and i think that's what idealism offers uh, the, the legitimization of psychological methods uh, as treatments and even cures for virtually uh any disease. Now, of course, there are limits to this in practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a genetic condition that is fully penetrant, you can meditate until you're blue in the face. You're probably mm-hmm. not going to change that because those are very, very, in, very inherent, deeply penetrating thought patterns yeah. that you could even introspect into and you probably have to live with them forever. yeah uh, But still, it pushes the boundaries much further. Uh, uh regarding what can be achieved through the psychological channel
0: you would still describe that as a thought pattern though something that was genetic it's just deep, a, a very deep thought pattern
1: i think what we call genes what mm-hmm. we call biology in general is just the extrinsic appearance of certain thought patterns yeah. uh, but from the ego this part of mind that we uh, identify with and can control through volition can introspect into uh, it's just a part of this universe of dissociated thoughts that we mm-hmm. call a human being. And the ego is not necessarily powerful enough to change all these patterns of thoughts. Yeah. Uh, um, th- there are bigger forces at play here. Right. But can through the egoic channel, uh, can you influence that much deeper stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, I th- I think we can
0: influence that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tend to agree with that. So one of the other interesting implications of idealism has to do with free will. So similar to the many worlds hypothesis, there are many prominent public intellectuals right now pushing the many worlds hypothesis. There are also a few prominent public intellectuals that like to tell you that you don't have any free will. What do you think about that, Bernardo?
1: I think this dichotomy, free will, and determinism is a false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. It's a conceptual, conceptual game that is fundamentally mistaken. It only exists in words. It doesn't exist in reality. Um, I'll explain to you why. When we talk about this dichotomy, free will, and determinism, the intuition is the following. Um, if my choice is being determined by factors that I cannot change, then it's deterministic and I don't have free will. Mm -hmm. Um, The alternative is my choice is not determined. So either my choice is determined and then it's determinism or it's not determined and Mm -hmm. then it's free will. But a non-determined choice is chaos. Uh, It means that uh, it's not influenced by your preferences. It's not influenced by your goals. Uh, it's undetermined. It's the flip of a coin. It's random. Mm-hmm. That's not what we mean either by free will. So my point is, there is no semantic space between these two polarities. Yeah, uh, you cannot have something that is both non-determined and non-random. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist. I think what we, if you really meditate into this, what we mean by free will is the choice is determined. But it's only determined by factors that I identify myself with.
0: Right. So that's so really my be- choice. Yeah.
1: That's, that's really choice the key.
0: Is,
1: yeah. yeah. So my choice is determined by my thoughts, and I identify with my thoughts. Yeah. I am my thoughts. Right. So I have free will. But right. it's still completely determined by the patterns that govern the unfolding of thoughts. Yeah. It's fully determined. Yeah. The only difference is that the agent that makes that determination is something I identify myself with. Mm-hmm. And then I say, Oh, I have free will. And because we don't identify with neurons in our head, of mm-hmm. course not. We identify with our subjective in our life. life. Right. I don't feel that I am neurons or subatomic particles bouncing around inside my skull. I don't right. feel that. Yep. But if a materialist tells you, well, that's what you are. Well, I don't feel that I am that. You're telling me that I am that, but I don't identify with it. If my choices are determined by those bouncing subatomic particles, then I don't have free will. Right. Because I don't identify with those bouncing bouncing subatomic particles. But the moment I come and say those bouncing subatomic particles are not what you are. They are simply the image of what you are from a second-person perspective. Right. They are what what you are looks like from yeah. an external point of view. That's all there is to those bouncing subatomic particles. Right. They are the image of what you are from the point of view of another person. But what you really are yeah. is your conscious their life, is your thoughts, your emotions, your preferences, your opinions, and so on. And your choices are indeed determined by your thoughts, your emotions, your opinions, and so on. Therefore, from that perspective, there is what people call free will. But then I would be even more careful because we just said that beyond these thoughts you identify yourself, yourself with, thoughts that you can access through introspection, your ego, beyond that there is the so-called unconscious or the obfuscated mind, which is also part of your dissociated outer, but you don't identify with that. Mm-hmm. You think you're just your ego. You don't think you are the rest, the mm-hmm. obfuscated mind. I think this obfuscated mind is much more powerful in determining your choices mm-hmm. than your egoic uh, thoughts. Uh, your choices are determined by things that we don't even guess. The, it's like we are a tiny little ego boat sitting on top of raging high seas. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and we yeah. can point the rudder in a certain direction, right. but you're not going to go necessarily in that direction. The winds, the currents, the waves, they're going to drag you in another direction. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, is the reality of the situation. Yeah. Our choices are being governed by conscious factors in mind even in our own dissociated mind let alone mind at large that we do not identify ourselves with Mm -hmm. and then from that broader perspective i would say our free will is very very limited can you choose your next thought can you choose not to have an obsession Mm -hmm. or a compulsion can you choose not to feel a certain way i mean can you even choose really your partner? Yeah. Is it really what you identify with that chooses your partner partner in life, the person you, you marry or that you make love with? Or is it all kinds of other things that are going on at a deep emotional level that you don't identify yourself with, that you may even say I'm a victim of that. I'm a victim of my projections, mm-hmm. uh, of the patterns imprinted on me since my childhood. Uh, I think that's the question left for meditation. But at the level of universal consciousness as a whole, of course there is free will. Because universal consciousness as a whole is all there is. Mm -hmm. So nothing can happen that is determined by a factor outside universal consciousness. So from the point of view of universal consciousness, if you don't identify with your ego, if you don't identify with your body, if you identify with all of existence, then... Everything happens as it has to because it's determined. And at the same time, everything happens as you, universal consciousness, wants it to happen. Uh, At that level, necessity is the same as preference you prefer what is needed and what is needed is what you prefer you as universal consciousness Mm -hmm. things only get confused when dissociation comes into play and then we get lost in identifying with subsets of the whole and then yeah is there free will is there not it depends on what you identify Mm -hmm. yourself with
0: you're uh, pretty clear though that the way that you make your way through dissociation is through meditation though right
1: I think life is the image of dissociation. Mm -hmm. I think the only way you will really overcome dissociation is when you die. Yeah. Because if life is the image of dissociation, what's the image of the end, the overcoming of dissociation? It's death. Yeah. It's the end of life. For as long as you have a living, breathing body, I think you are dissociated. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you you can't have little, temporary, partial excursions into Mm -hmm. non-dissociated land. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can uh, some of that happens spontaneously we have testimonies of people throughout history that have had spontaneous experiences of uh, uh, spontaneous non-duo experiences uh, what uh, Richard Burke called um, uh, cosmic consciousness mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't mean that you died probably your brain activity reduced significantly like psychedelics do they reduce your brain activity significantly that reduction is probably correlated with a reduction in dissociation so you get access to territory beyond your dissociative boundary boundaries which you remember after you come back Mm -hmm. Um, so you can have those experiences I think non do experiences have to do with making the dissociative boundary more porous yeah, uh, not as restrictive. It sort of relaxes those boundaries. You can go across them, experience okay. something, and come back. Which from a uh, second for,
0: person perspective has to do with reduced, not increased brain activity, right? And I think a lot of people think it's the opposite.
1: There is a very consistent pattern uh, linking uh, reduced brain activity to experiences of transcendence. Yeah. Uh, uh, mystical experiences, religious experiences, psychedelic experiences. Uh, I mentioned just a few examples. Psychedelics uh, uh, operate by reducing brain metabolism, brain activity. They reduce blood flow and blood oxygenation uh, throughout the brain, particularly in the default mode network, which is associated with the ego. <laughs> Interestingly, mm. um, um, a partial strangulation, uh, a dangerous game that teenagers play worldwide called the choking game. Right. They, partly strangle themselves and restricting blood flow uh, to the to the brain Uh, so brain activity reduces brain metabolism reduces uh, and they have uh, amazing transpersonal experiences Uh, they they trip so to say yeah they trip on the edge just by partly strangling themselves dangerous game nobody should do that you're much better off meditating or or doing breathing exercises because hyperventilation increases blood alkalinity and it causes constriction of blood vessels in the brain. So brain activity gets reduced. Uh, um, So if you hyperventilate in the correct way, uh, you will pass out. Uh, But while you're passed out, you're not unconscious, you're having amazing transcendent experiences and then you come back. Um, Even mystics, there was a study done in Brazil, I think 2013, um, they have these mediums, self-proclaimed mediums, that claim to have access to some transcendent source of information and they write down this transcendent information that they get. Some some scientists in Brazil decided to test this and they put these mediums in a functional brain scanner while they were psychographing, which is the name, which is sort of transcri- transcribing information from a transcendent source. And guess what? When they did that, they could write... in. Incredibly complex text. There are Hmm. measures of complexity that you can apply They could write more complex text than a normal person writing uh, uh, Just trying to write as best as they can these mediums could could write more complex text Um, And because their brain activity was being monitored they saw they saw that brain activity reduced in key areas of the brain uh, associated with writing complex text Hmm. Uh, so uh, another reason to believe uh, in, in this link also there's a study in Italy uh, people were studied for feelings of self transcendence before and after brain surgery for the removal of tumors and this surgery always causes collateral damage impairs brain function and guess what after surgery these people have uh, um, much stronger feelings of self-transcendence, they Mm. don't identify themselves purely with their bodies anymore, they identify with the world at large. Very peculiar, even Vietnam War veterans uh, who had um, brain damage, there was a study in 2016, over 100 of them were studied, and uh, brain damage was correlated with having more mystical experiences. So brain function impairment, reduced brain activity, yeah. uh, reduced f- from the perspective of the baseline, uh, is associated with transcendent, non-dual, mystic, mystic experiences. And uh, that, for materialism, is very hard to reconcile, because under materialism, brain activity is experience, or uh-huh. generates experience. Right. So how can you have richer experience with less brain activity? Right. Uh, the materialists are trying to solve this puzzle now. I actually yes. have a an essay on Scientific American, is coming out anytime now that, that will criticize their attempt to make sense of this. Um, but from, from my point of view, if, if normal brain activity is the image of dissociation, if you impair that brain activity in the right way, you will reduce dissociation. And that naturally leads to transcendent, non-dual mystical experiences.
0: That makes sense. Um, so that's more powerful evidence against materialism as it relates to consciousness, but, uh, you've got a new book coming out as I understand it, right? Uh, the that's idea correct. of the world where you're going to tackle the concept of space time. want to talk a bit about that
1: amongst other things, uh, yeah, amongst, the yeah. idea of, yeah, uh, it's my seventh book. Mm-hmm. Um, the other books, as you mentioned, the other six are for what I like to call an educated audience. And I don't mean by that school education. Right. Uh, there are many people who are self-educated and, and they put uh, schooled people to shame. Yes. <laughs> if, if you know what I mean. Uh, but these are not uh, uh, magazine level books uh, in the sense that it requires some, some attention to mm-hmm. go through the arguments but they were targeted at a general audience a general educated audience and with this seventh book i am targeting squarely um, the academic world mm-hmm. the book is still accessible to a general audience but it it's 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 the most rigorous book i've written um, it's sort of a if there if, if there is a, a court of scientific and philosophical arbitration this book is my case for that court <laughs> if you know what i mean it's uh-huh. it's Um, It's, I I go into detail into every possible Uh, counter-argument, it's almost hair-splitting. It's very explicit, very detailed, Um, and it's my attempt to complete my work by covering that hole, covering that gap. The part about space-time comes at the end of the book, and and the idea there is the following. Uh, For the idealist. Uh, The only fundamental thing in nature is experience. That means that not even space-time is fundamental. Mm. Space-time, for the idealist, are certain qualities of experience. Space is a quality associated uh, with relationships between objects perceived on the screen of perception. That's what we call space. I have an object here, I have an object there. These are perceived on the screen of perception. There's a relationship between them that I call the space. Mm-hmm. Less space, more space. But it's a relationship between contents of perception. And time is the quality associated with memory and expectations. Um, what is the past but a memory?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you point to the past and say, There is the past? Yeah, right. It's not out there. The past only exists insofar as we experience it now as a memory. There has never been a moment in your life in which the past was anything else than this. Mm-hmm. And a memory has certain qualities. Definiteness, things that you can't change anymore, low resolution, because you you don't quite, you can't quite visualize them uh, with high resolution anymore. Same thing for the future. You can't point at it and say, there is the future. The future, at any point in your life, has only ever existed as a set of expectations that you experience now, Expectations experienced in the present. Um, and there are certain qualities associated with these these expectations. Openness. Um, uh, um, a, a lack of definition. A certain uh, overlap of possibilities. These are qualities of the experience of expectations that you have now. Uh, so for the idealist, there is no time. There are only qualities of experience. The problem is that... Uh, Once an idealist uses language, he's already operating within space and time, because language presupposes space and time. Hmm. Uh, Verbs are things that unfold in time. Nouns refer to things that exist in space. So uh, the idealist is forced into using space-time language as a metaphor to point to something that is inherently not dependent on space-time. Another problem is that uh, even the idealist, like me, uh, will describe Uh, experiences, uh, metaphorically, as uh, vibrations or excitations of consciousness. Remember, we talked about it in the beginning. We could visualize uh, universal consciousness as space and experiences as vibrations, excitations of space. But an excitation, a vibration, requires space and time to exist. Mm -hmm. Vibrations are movements in space that unfold across time. So... When, I, when the idealist says that uh, experiences are like vibrations of consciousness, that's a metaphor. There is something outside space-time that from within space-time we can best describe as a vibration or, or an excitation. But that doesn't mean that the, ideal, the idealist is granting that there exists a fundamental sp- space-time scaffolding out there within which experiences is unfolding, uh, unfolds. No, the idealist says that space and time exists within, exists within consciousness as qualities of experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I will definitely look forward to reading that. It's called The Idea of the World. Check it out, folks. Um, I think we can probably talk for quite a long time, but we should probably look to wrap this up. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Bernardo. Um, check out his books on Amazon.com. If you like this podcast, you think it's useful, please share it up. Give us a review. Um, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care.
1: Thanks for having me.